In My Experience is a new podcast series by the UCD Humanities Institute, which aims to explore a wide range of political, social and cultural issues. In this episode, marking International Women's Day, Director of the Institute, Anna Fuchs, is joined by activist and militante feminist Alva Smith as they explore Alva's personal experience of the social transformation of Ireland in Don't Ask Permission. Alva, thanks very much for contributing to our interview series In My Experience. Let's begin by traveling back in time to your childhood and youth. Could you tell us where did you grow up and how do you remember your childhood? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation with you, Anna. It's a real pleasure. Um, I grew up, I was born in Dublin. And my mother had been born in Belfast. My father was born Uh, in Dublin, but his family originally came from County Meath. And um, I grew up in, oh goodness, Dublin, growing up in Dublin, even in a middle-class family, my abiding memory of Dublin and growing up there in the 1950s were of the, you know, very widespread poverty. People were poor. Uh, there was no money, and even for my middle-class parents, there was no cash around the place. And th there was nothing available for any kind of, of luxury. But, of course, there were people who were living in tenement squalor still in Dublin at the time, and even just wandering around the streets, you knew about that. And clearly, since that's something that's remained with me as a very kind of vivid memory, um, it, it obviously made an impression on me as a child and that sense of the difference between my reasonably comfortable life and the difference, the different lives that so many people were living. It was also very cold, Anna. Um, you know, it was cold at home. It was cold at school. There was no heating. Everything felt cold. And the 1950s were like that, I think. They were cold years. Well, I'm not just thinking about the Cold War, but I mean, they were cold years in the sense that everybody, it was tight. Everything was tight. It was a very repressed society. And economically, we hadn't had any, any bounce from the new economic policies that were beginning to develop then. That's a very interesting uh, a comment, you know, the, the, the coldness of the time, because I've just finished reading John Banville's latest novel, Snow, which is set in 1950s Ireland down in Wexford. And Banville uses the metaphor of coldness, of snow. His Inspector Strafford kind of stomps across this snowy landscape or he interviews people in cold country houses. So um, I was struck by, by that because it resonates with what you've just said, that, you know, um, this, this, this is a very different image of Ireland when you compare it with a more conventional depiction of a very warm and welcome yeah. country. Well, I often think when I think back now, I often think that those years in the 50s and, of, you know, even at the 
press top, certainly even during the 60s, it was as if we were frozen in time. We were locked into Ireland because, of course, you couldn't really travel anywhere except to get the boat over to Hollyhead, which people really didn't do. And flying was extremely unusual and only for the very wealthy, so that you were locked into this place which was really frozen in time. We didn't have television. Um, the radio, which is why I still absolutely love radio, the ra which I think is a brilliant means of communication. Um, you know, we had nothing outside ourselves. We had nothing to relieve us and distract us from ourselves. And I've often thought that that's that inward looking, um, incestuous kind of Ireland that we were by economic and, and geographical positioning meant it explains a lot, I think, about Ireland at that time. And it also, I think, maybe explains something about why those of us who were born just after the second so-called World War, um, you know, began to rebel and protested against that deep freeze that our country and that we were in, in the late 60s and the 70s. Okay, you have already traveled into the 1960s, so this brings me perhaps to my next uh, question. Uh, you studied in UCD in, in uh, the early 1960s, actually before uh, UCD moved out to Belfield, so it was still very much part of the city center, what is now the National Concert Hall, and you studied English and French um, at a time when UCD was very different, I presume, from what it is now. So um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, your curriculum, what was on it or rather what was not on it? Well, first of all, I should say that I finished school when I was just 16 for reasons which don't have a great deal to do with my brain, but an awful lot to do with the school structure. And I wanted to go to Trinity. Um, which accepted students at the age of 16, whereas UCD didn't. And um, my parents consulted the local parish priest who said, oh, no, we'd have to get permission from um, the archbishop, who was John Charles McQuaid. And he said, I wouldn't advise that. So <laughs> um, it was felt that it would be more appropriate for me as a young middle-class Catholic girl uh, to go to UCD. And indeed, I was the first girl in my very large extended family to go to university. I had lots and lots and lots of cousins. So it was a very big thing um, to be that eldest child of a family who was a girl who was going to university. And I really had no idea what to study, but um, I, I, I thought, oh, well, I like reading. I'm, I'm, I'm good at reading, so I'll do English. And I had always loved French from a very early age. And I think I had well understood that I could use that as a kind of escape route from the frozen wastes of Siberian Ireland, uh, which I did. Um, and I ended up in UCD in a situation where every lecture theatre had a crucifix in it, where I remember very vividly going into the library in my innocence in my first year and requesting a book um, by Voltaire, which was on my, my, my program, my curriculum. And the message came out from the librarian um, that I couldn't have that book because it was a banned book. It was on the index. And I trotted off to Professor Louis Roach, who was actually a very, very kind and interesting man. And she said to me, absolute nonsense, rubbish, go back in and say the professor wrote, says you're to have it. 
But then not very long afterwards, I went in maybe when I was in second year into the library and a message came out saying that girl with the hair, I had very long hair, that girl with the hair has to has to leave the library because she's wearing trousers. <laughs> I mean, there was absolutely no end to it. But I mean, I do... I, I do remember some absolutely brilliant people. Uh, as I say, Louis Roach was really very interesting and French, a very scholarly man who was very interested in the 17th and the 18th century. So actually we did uh, really quite a lot of the books that were <laughs> supposedly on the index and you went through all of the classics, Corneille and Racine. And I developed a great love for Madame de Sévigné, who was much dismissed because, of course, the letters that Madame de Sévigné wrote, A, were letters, was the epistolary form, and B, she was a woman, and who could possibly be interested in her? Um, but I also uh, remember in English, we had um, oh, that wonderful man, John Jordan, who was really quite an extraordinary teacher, and the great hugely respected um, Lorna Reynolds, mm -hmm. who ultimately became a professor in Galway, in NUI Galway, because they wouldn't give her a chair in UCD because she was a woman. But she was really wonderful. And Lorna, who I came to know in later life, she was a, a very extraordinary person. Um, she was the one person I can say during certainly the first couple of years in UCD that I felt this was somebody I really looked up to. Mm -hmm. And this was a role model. This was somebody that I wanted to be able, first of all, to please. And, and secondly, in some small way, to be able to emulate. So overall, UCD was a very different place. It was very Catholic, quite repressive. But you also felt it was closer. You were closer to things. First of all, you were closer to the city, which was absolutely brilliant. And we spent a lot of our time wandering around Dublin City, which I don't regret in the least. And But you were also closer to people somehow. It was, it was a very friendly environment. And I think there was a kind of students against the system. Um, we have to be, uh, we have to be supportive of one another. And I mean, I studied alongside really great people um, and was not, not at all unhappy in UCD as a student. Of course, this is interesting because it allows us to think about how social change happens. Well, I mean, I, I think that that, of course, always to a limited extent did happen in Ireland. There were always these spaces that opened up for people. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had um, the magnificent writers and artists and um, social campaigners and so on that we have had. And I, but I think that what was happening in you know, the early 60s was perhaps a little bit more than that. I think that there was a real reaching out across the sea, so to speak. So that for somebody like myself in, in French studies, it was very clear that uh, reading people like Sartre and Camus and so on, uh, this was opening up a whole philosophical area, a whole way of being in the world that was very, very different from what I knew in the small world I inhabited, but that was all the more attractive for that. And therefore, during 
during the course of the 60s, um, that became very much more pronounced. And by the end of the 60s, of course, um, UCD did have its own sort of quiet, the gentle revolution. But I mean, I remember in, um, I was probably in second or third year, I can't remember exactly, but we did a play by Sartre. I was in the, I was sort of on the fringes of Dramsock and in the French society and the French society with Dramsock did uh, Sartre's We Clue behind in camera. And I actually very presciently played the role of Inez, who is lesbian. And without in any sense having, I, I probably didn't really only barely knew the word and didn't know anybody else who was lesbian. I had no idea that, you know, that this was maybe a direction in which my sexuality might go. But my point is that we had those possibilities were beginning to come into our hands and into our heads where you could explore different ways of being. And then when I went to do my MA, um, I went to France and that was just coming up to 1968. And I was actually in France for 1968. And I think then it, it just sort of exploded. But uh, there was a real sense in which we were kind of ready for it mm -hmm. uh, in Ireland. We had that sense of opening up, definitely. And the change was happening. What I'm um, taking from, from your narrative so far is that your engagement with French culture appears to have been more formative than, say, English literature or, you know, um, British culture, generally speaking, which is perhaps not surprising given the importance of uh, French philosophy, literature and thought Uh, in the post-war period generally, and especially with the explosion of 1968. And in the case of Germany, of course, you know, 68 was the pivotal moment, a transformative moment that changed post-war West Germany uh, more than anything, I would argue. Yes. Now, in the case of Ireland, of course, you, you, you referred to the gentle revolution, because obviously 68 did not manifest itself in the kind of you know, aggressive demonstrations and and uh, sit-ins and all the kind of things that happened in France and across the continent. But yep. there were sit-ins in UCD, not in 68. I think that would have been 69, mm -hmm. not great on dates, um, which were led by people, including Rory Quinn, for example. And I mean, they were quite, and the student Christian movement was very involved in those. So they were, it was a real protest movement. Um, and it did, have teach-ins and sit-ins and squats. I can remember being down in the cafe downstairs, the basement in um, Earlsford Terrace and at, at some kind of sit-in. Now, I have to say, I wasn't, very, I wasn't at all political at that time, but I did know that something was happening, but it wasn't being, it wasn't being echoed out on the streets in Ireland at the time. So it came to be seen as a gentle revolution, but it was really important to, I think everybody who was part of that at the time, because precisely it brought us into the European mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I was very aware, having been in France in 1968, even if I wasn't very well informed, I understood that this was a new kind of energy which was manifesting itself and that it was young people who had um, socialist and Marxist views, and that this was to create a very different sort of world. Uh, and um, as I say, I, I wasn't political, but I did know that that was really important and that it was, you know, it was setting down a line 
between the past of tradition and the very conservative past in France um, and, and also in Ireland and so on and so forth. And then, so later on, when the women's movement came, which is leaping ahead, and we can go back to the 60s, but leaping ahead, um, as, as that developed during the 70s, it was as if I knew what that was about. I understood from internally what this pro protest was about. I had a framework, a frame of reference, which enabled me to see that I, as a woman, hadn't really been there in 68. Mm -hmm. uh, women were, were, were absent as women. Gender was not a question. And that this questioning of gender and protesting against the repression of women and the oppression of women was opening up yet another dimension. So there was, just thinking about your question about social change, and you, I can certainly feel that very strongly in my own life, that emerging from that very quiescent and acquiescent 50s into a more interrogative 60s. And then in, in terms of my own life history, um, it was towards the end of the 70s that I became what the French so elegantly call une militante, which, right. I, which I like rather better. I like militant better than activist. Well, I mean, I like the word activist. I love it. But militant was what I felt. And militant, I would still willingly describe myself as une militante feminist. You said earlier that when you went to France, you were not yet politicized even though this experience of France was transformative in many different ways, if I understand you correctly, in terms of the exposure to new cultural language, the immersion in all of that, uh, soaking up um, the, the books, the theater, the political movements at the time and so on. But you were not political, you said, not overtly, latently maybe. No, I wasn't political. I came from a split family, split between my father's Finnegalers, the Blue Shirts, and my mother's uh, Republican uh, background, Fianna Foyle background. Um, my grandfather had, my Belfast grandfather had been in, imprisoned in Frongoch during, um, in, in 1917, I think, actually. He wasn't at the GPO, but I mean, he was old IRA. So we never discussed politics in the family because it was it was very, very sensitive. Um, and I just wasn't political. Girls were not raised to be political or to think politics. So it was as if the 60s were years in which I began to learn to think for myself. And I say I began because I think I'm actually still learning to do that. But um, I began to learn that you could think, that you could have opinions, that you could have ideas and that you could back them up. Um, which was the great gift of a university education for me, that I, I really understood that. And my confidence, which was sub-zero when I went to UCD, did begin to improve. It still has big lacunae, but, you know, it did grow. So it was having, and also, this may seem frivolous, but I think it's very true. Being in France, well, you know, that speaking another language, you are not quite the same person in different languages. You're a slightly different you, a different aspect of yourself comes out. And I felt that the 
actually the more sophisticated me came out in French. And that's why I say it's maybe a little frivolous, but I felt I felt more at ease. I felt more confident. I felt able to mm-hmm. um, discuss ideas that I felt clumsy and awkward at doing in English. And I kind of still do very often, actually. This ties in with, with another question that, that I'd like to ask you, namely whether, you know, you, you had a political eureka moment. I don't think there was a, a specific eureka moment, but over the 70s, in the mid 70s, um, the women's movement was, you know, had grown strong in Ireland and it, it was obviously very strong in North America, uh, in Britain, in Europe, in France, in Germany, in Italy and so on and so forth. And I was very aware of that. But what actually happened to me in the 70s was I was very ill for a number of years. I was lecturing in UCD in Department of French and I... Um, became really very ill with anorexia nervosa and what was diagnosed as clinical depression. So I was in and out of St. Patrick's Hospital for several years at that time from about 1973 for about about probably four or five years. And thanks to, uh, I'll always be grateful to UCD for this, if not for some other things, um, they kept my job open as I was coming and going. So I was reading, but not actively involved, because a lot of the time I was just in hospital. And But that whole process, of course, made me actually think about, particularly the anorexia, what was it? Why did I have anorexia? What was it about me? And that made me think about myself as a woman, uh, gender, my background, um, the kinds of pressures and stresses and strains I was under. And with reading and thinking and listening to not so much what other people, other women were saying, because it was all through books. Um, I began to begin to have, I began to be able to theorize my own situation, actually. It's as simple as that, in a sense. And I became much more interested and started looking outwards to women around me. So that by the time I had, um, I had a, my daughter was born in 1977, but not by my husband, by another man. I left my husband after six months. So I was a very bad girl. You know, I was somebody who uh, had got married, left the marriage, had a baby by another man. I had no intent. I mean, I wanted to have a baby. This was not the dumb thing at all for a middle-class girl. And I had to stand on my own two feet and say, no, this is what I as a woman actually want to do. But I ran into so many obstacles after Lydia's birth. I mean, not least of which that um, I had to get go to a special office to get her a passport because they wouldn't accept her father as her father. And they were afraid that I would, when I brought her out of the country, that I would have her adopted. Mm-hmm that I was taking her out of the country. So that made me look at the kinds of structures in my own life and then all of the reading around it, feminism just seemed to me to be self-evident. There was no argument in my head, am I a feminist or not? It was just quite simply, if this is happening to me, it's happening to other women and probably in very much worse circumstances. So, you know, I have got to get involved in this because we cannot allow this to to continue. So that's not Eureka, that's a decade. It's a decade. And it's also, um, 
you know, the experience of illness as a symptom of a broader social malaise in the sense that, you know, being a, a single mother in Ireland at the time would have been extremely difficult being lesbian even more so. Well, I wasn't lesbian until later. I was serially and sequentially bad rather than all at once. So, <laughs> um, I mean, becoming a feminist was considered to be very outre altogether in my, mm-hmm. uh, in, in my fam- familial milieu. And I don't think everybody, anybody really mentioned it. I mean, but those were years in which to campaign for contraception was seen to be extremely radical. So although I wasn't part of Irish Women United, I wish, I wish, I wish I hadn't been ill. I wish it's a great regret of my life that I wasn't involved then. But by the time the end of the 70s came, I mean, I was fully fledged, you could say, as a feminist and raring to get get out there on those streets. And of course, we ran pretty quickly into the um, into the abortion situation, the, the referendum that was called then for 1983. And I was absolutely up and running and on those streets. Um, and, and keeping my job as an academic and bringing that feminism into the work I was doing in UCD, where it was by no means warmly welcomed by everybody, au contraire, I mean, it was, it was frowned upon. And I, I had a bad reputation, I think, at that time for being a radical. It never left me. And, and you know, I should say that wasn't just a reputation. They were right about that. Now, you mentioned earlier that, you know, your role in UCD changed. You, you started out then as a lecturer in French, mm-hmm. but you switched uh, and you uh, set up the Women's Education Research and Resource Center, which was very influential and radical at the time. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, again, it was a process and that took more than a decade really to come about. I had started teaching on a course in um, a final year course and in, in UCD along with Mike Kelly, who was later professor of French in Southampton. Mike was a great colleague and uh, a Marxist. And we were, we were teaching a course called Intellectual Movements in Modern and Contemporary France. It seems like a dinosauric title now. And I had the, a big feminist module on that course, which ran really during, um, I suppose, probably the late 70s, during the 80s anyway. And I was back, back and forth to France and had a year's sabbatical in France in 82 and came back and decided to set up something called the Women's Studies Forum in UCD. And I put up a notice that said, Women's Studies Forum meets two o'clock, uh, meets one o'clock every Tuesday in room D109 or whatever it was. And people, women started coming up to me saying, oh, I'd like to join. Can I join? Are there lots of people? And I would say, oh, yes, loads of people. Of course you can join. Nobody except me and my little notice. And the first Tuesday meeting, the room was absolutely packed. Um, with really colleagues, actually, but not only academic colleagues, colleagues from different parts of the university, um, all women. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And we had brilliant mentors in uh, really wonderful women, Margaret McCartan, who, of course, very sadly, we lost last year. And Margaret remained a very dear friend and someone who I esteemed beyond beyond words, really. She was extraordinary. And the wonderful Helen Burke in social science, who was a fantastic woman and again a friend. And Mary Bell Foley and there were there were others, but that little triumvirate were very, very important. And they 
they stood by that development of women's studies and they knew perfectly well what we were up to. And I finally got to set up women's studies, never really got permission, just sort of made it happen in 1990. In fact, there was some, I think something was turned down or was in the process of being turned down uh, at the Faculty of Arts. I wasn't on academic council because I still wasn't a senior lecturer. Um, and somebody said, no, 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 we can't, we can't possibly have an MA in women's studies. And I remember standing up and saying, well, actually we do. It, it, it started last year. <laughs> I don't know how. Um, I really don't know how. I'd have to go back to the annals to find out. But I had learned a lesson, and, and I think it has stood me in very good stead, certainly for campaigning purposes, but I think otherwise as well. Don't ask permission. If it's something that you believe is right and that you feel you can do and that you need to do, you should do it. And on the whole, that was the way in which we set up women's studies. But they, And it was wonderful, wonderful to set up women's studies. But we were physically in UCD marginalised. We were put over in a tiny little room in the library building and nobody really wanted to have to acknowledge that there was women's studies. So I was... I, I think, you know, quite strategic about it. And I think it was then I realized I'm really, really, I, I'm a strategist more than anything else, I think. I thought, well, we've got to get the, we've got to get the external approval if we can't get it inside. So I, you know, tapped ministers that I knew, women. And I said, you've got to come and open this and you've got to come and speak at that and you've got to stand by us. And they would come and do these things. <laughs> so you'd have maybe the Minister for Education, actually, Neil Brannock at the time, or Gemma Hussey was, was really wonderful. And there were others who supported us. So it was quite difficult, but it was so important because I think the very fact of women's studies and our presence was a kind of alert to other disciplines, at least within the humanities and the social sciences, that they needed to ask themselves questions about gender. You you talked about your feminism in, uh, and as a decisive as a decisive political orientation, more than that, actually, a sense of identity and anchoring in your life. And you mentioned en passant that kind of you came out later in yes. your life. At what point then did uh, lesbianism feature uh, uh, in your own biography or when did you feel that this, this was something that you, you wanted to embrace publicly? Well, I, I think what happened was towards the end of the 80s and I had become involved in, in the women's movement and was quite, you know, just mixing with um, mixing with uh, all kinds of women, including lots of lesbians and also traveling abroad to conferences and so on in women's studies. And it so happened that, you know, I, I, I fell in love with, with the woman uh, who I met at a conference and said to myself, hmm, okay, so I'm lesbian. <laughs> and it really was as simple, as simple and as complicated as that, because of course the sequelae were quite complicated, quite complex. There was a lot of pressure on me uh, in UCD not to come out. And of course I did, because I mean, I was out, I, I couldn't be in. Um, but it did have consequences for me in my family life. And I, I, 
you know, firmly believe until this day that it definitely being pro-choice and a lesbian and feminist in UCD and known as such from the 1990s did me no favours in promotional terms whatsoever. And that I will not forgive UCD for very easily because that is about punishing on, well, I think it's unfair and I've never liked anything unfair, but it's unfair to me personally. But it was also that terrible misogyny and homophobia that was built into the institution um, and which has taken decades to, 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 to be bled out of it. And I, I hope that it is at least well on the way to that at this stage. But for me, it was really important to not be in, if you like, and to immediately start incorporating uh, that sense of the importance of lesbian studies, which was a branch at the time of women's studies, and to do something about it. So uh, we started Lesbian Lives. I started Lesbian Lives in, I think, 1993, which was a, an annual conference, which is still going strong. But it was about opening it up to that whole community of women, of, of lesbians uh, in Ireland, and indeed straight women too. No, we, it wasn't a separatist um, event. And that I think was very important, but, but seen as unacceptable, at some level quite shocking. And again, it's something that I'm very proud of in my history in UCD. Uh, you really have to do those kinds of things. I mean, how how are we going to how are we going to say the word lesbian if we didn't have events and public if it wasn't ever in the public domain? So you had to go and put these things that were feminist and lesbian and so on into the public domain. Looking forward, I'd like to conclude our conversation by asking you, what are your own personal hopes for the next five years? Well, you know, as we begin to enter some kind of transition from this terrible blight of the, the pandemic, I think it's really difficult to know it, it's really difficult to know where to set your agenda, in a sense, because I think we've been through, the world has been through something very, a very traumatic experience. And I think it's going to leave very profound marks and scars and damage. And we're not really going to see that very clearly for some time, both on a personal level. I mean, I've spent the past year effectively in solitary confinement, you could say. I haven't been touched by another human being except medically in a year, which is remarkable. Um, and many people have been through very, very difficult, distressing experiences. So somebody asked me a similar question recently, and I said, come back to me in a year or two, okay. and I might be able to answer it. But I hope that we will have a clearer sense coming from the experience of seeing how people in direct provision have been treated, how older people have been treated, how children with uh, learning difficulties have been treated, people generally with disabilities. I hope that we will have an understanding that we are still not nearly uh, a just enough society or even indeed a kind enough society. Thank you very much for this conversation, Alva. And I look forward to meeting you perhaps sometime in the near future. Thank you, Anna. Our changes.
My Experience is a UCD Humanities Institute podcast.